Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi and welcome everyone to our latest podcast on criminal cases. Between 1981 and 1987, Switzerland, a quiet model country, was for the first time in the grips of a shadowy killer who struck and disappeared. All that was known about him is that he handpicked his victims, teenage boys who were hitchhiking to get home or forced aboard his vehicle before being gagged, raped and burnt alive. For police from the townships of Valais and Tessin, it was impossible to report and track the sexual predator who always managed to get away without leaving a trace. But unexpectedly, one of his victims eventually put the focus on someone who used mobility as their approach. A murderer with uncontrolled sexual impulsions, tortured by repressed homosexuality and a desire to do harm. His name was Michel Perry. In Switzerland, he would be known as the abominable sadist of Roman. Examining Michel Piri's twisted childhood and adolescence will hopefully yield a greater understanding of the inner workings of a serial killer and what goes on in the minds of those who choose to make killing their mantra. The following is a look back at one of the most controversial cases of the 1980s that was transformed and shocked all of Switzerland. On May 7, 1986, in Nuuk, a small village in French-speaking Switzerland, it was past midnight, the Antel family home was in great panic. Cedric, the 13-year-old son, had not yet returned home. An hour earlier, his father had driven all the way to Sierre, where he searched block after block without finding his son. When Cedric left to meet his friends, he told his parents that he would be back by 9.30. It was unlikely for him to be late like this. The next day, with no news about their son yet, the Antel family decided to alert the local police. The police tried to reassure the devastated parents that their son had simply run away and would soon return home. There was no point in worrying. It was what teenagers usually did. Days went by without any news and, more importantly, without any sign of life from Cedric. The police agreed to post a missing persons bulletin, but it did not do anything more than that. Abandoned, the parents of the missing child realized that they had no one to count on but themselves. Accompanied by their other parents, friends, their neighbors, and mountain guides, they crisscrossed the whole village for days and even at nights, but still found no trace of Cedric. Their despair, the waiting, and the worrying gradually increased as the days went by with no news from him. All that was known was that the inhabitants of Sierra had last seen him on the main road at around 9.15pm. It was difficult to determine where he went after that. 
In the Yuk, the anthills, who were good people by all accounts, had to face the harshest accusations and nastiest rumors. People wanted to know why the couple did not go looking for their son. On that very night, he failed to return home. Why did they wait for so long? To add to their humiliation, the couple's private life was also dragged through the mud. The husband was called out for being an alcoholic, while his wife was accused of using drugs. In this small village of only about 100 people, there were whispers that the husband and wife often beat their son, which is why he ran away. For the parents of the missing child, who were expecting more support from their neighbors, this was the point of no return. Meanwhile, the wait was unbearable and lasted 43 days. Towards the end of the 44th day, the silence in the house was interrupted by a phone call from the police announcing the terrible news, which the young Cedric's parents were dreading for some time. A cadaver dog had found their son's body in Hotwale, completely charred 1,600 meters above sea level. The investigation did not last long since there was lack of proof or any other concrete supporting evidence. According to the judge, there was no doubt that the teenager had committed suicide. This was an additional blow to the Antel family, who now had to face a new round of sordid rumors. They were the parents of an unbalanced and suicidal child who had committed the final act out of desperation. Faced with mounting gossip and unfounded accusations, the husband and wife nevertheless remained united, convinced that their 13-year-old, who was usually so happy and quiet, would never have taken his own life, and especially atop a mountain, that he didn't even know. But what really happened that night? Three months later, the autopsy report came, down like a final verdict, accidental death. According to the report, the boy had started a fire to warm himself and his clothing accidentally caught fire. That was it. At that point, as far as the justice system was concerned, the Cedric Antel case was closed and the parents were now free to begin their grieving. But it would be way too easy to let it go as that because this was the only beginning of an avalanche of an unexpected crimes that would rock all of the French-speaking Switzerland. The next part of the story began a year later in the same region of Valais on a cold night in March 1987. While they were on their way home, a couple made a gruesome discovery at the edge of the road. A naked body, partially burned, had been tossed onto a grid. The police were immediately notified. The victim was identified as Winston Puip, a young man from the village. The motive of the crime was determined to be sexual in nature. Like Cedric, Winston was a carefree boy. He came from a loving home, he had a little sister, and his parents were farmers from the wealthy peasantry. On the evening of his attack, he was last seen in a tavern in Martigny, where he had a drink before leaving at around 10.30. Witnesses stated that they had seen him at 11, hitchhiking by the side of the road. In the township of Valais, emotions were at their peak. He could have done such a thing to Poop family's son. It seemed like an act of gratuitous violence. With that motive, so automatically, there was a tremendous groundswell of support for Winston's family, but also a psychosis had been initiated, revealed one reporter. The news of Winston's murder did not fail to reach Cedric's parents. Although they had no supporting evidence, they still could not refrain from reaching out to the parents of the victim. Nevertheless, they instantly drew the connection with what had happened to their son and were firmly convinced that the same individual had gone after both boys to sexually assault and then kill them. It was Friday, April 24 in Lausanne. The carnival was in full swing, beer was flowing, and the whole town was taken over by a colorful, drunk crowd. Among these young people was Thomas, a 16-year-old boy who was also taking part in the festivities. Around midnight, he decided to visit his parents, who lived in a small village in the Vado countryside. 
However, Thomas did not have a car and his friends were too drunk to drive. So he decided to walk along the road, hoping to spot a car that might be willing to take him to his destination. It was dark and cold. Thomas kept walking with his head tucked into his collar and his hands in the pockets of his leather jacket. His face still bore traces of makeup mixed with sweat, reminders of the evening that had just ended. He turned around several times, looking out for a car's headlight in the distance. He raised his hands and a beige bugo stopped at the edge of the road. Without hesitation, Thomas headed towards it. Remember, this was in the 1980s and youngsters were still very trusting of strangers. Thomas sat in the passenger seat and tried to initiate some casual conversation, but the driver sitting next to him was strangely silent and kept his eyes on the road. Thomas felt like a lump in his throat and also a bit soreness in his stomach. He then thought of all the beer he had that evening. He asked to open the window a bit because he was hot. The driver, who still hadn't said a word, pressed the button as requested and the windows automatically opened. They continued to drive almost another half an hour before eventually arriving at the entrance to the village. The teenager almost let out a sigh of relief when he saw houses before him. When he tried to get out of the car, things suddenly took a turn for the worse. Where are you going? I'm going home. Thank you for dropping me off. The driver pulled out a gun and pointed it at him, forcing him to get back into the car immediately. In panic, Thomas complied and got back into the passenger seat, offering no resistance. It was the beginning of the end. For more than an hour, they drove on the road to Ekalen and then in the direction of Moidon. The driver, who until then had been very quiet, was now all worked up, frantic and very nervous, wiping away the sweat that was dripping down his temple. He told Thomas that he was a prisoner on the run and that every police officer in the country was looking for him at this very minute. The teenager felt that something dangerous was about to happen and tried to jump out of the moving vehicle but discovered that the passenger door was locked. This escape attempt angered the driver. He grabbed the teenager by the head and slammed it violently against the window. Things were moving fast. They stopped at the edge of a forest where Thomas was once again beaten and handcuffed before his attacker dragged him into the woods to rape him. Thomas fought, screamed and tried to fend off the man who began to strike him. After a lengthy struggle, the young boy managed to break free of his shackles. His attacker grabbed a hammer and struck him ten times on the head before dragging him by his feet to the riverbank. The torture continued as his attacker shoved his head underwater repeatedly, barely giving enough time to catch his breath before starting all over again. Thomas had no other choice than to play dead, which probably saved his life, because his attacker eventually gave up and left him there. The young man, covered in blood, with pain in his limbs, managed to get to his feet. He walked for more than an hour before reaching the town of Sotens, located about two meters from the embankment where he had been assaulted. Someone from the village immediately called for help and telephoned his parents. In the hospital, the wounds to his skull required more than 40 stitches. Thomas was a miracle. He had escaped death. Despite the shock and his serious injuries, he was of great assistance to the police. His testimony was pivotal. According to the report, Jean Bernard, the police were impressed with the young man's courage and the accuracy with which he relayed all the facts. He successfully provided them with some significant information about his attacker. In fact, Thomas had memorized quite a bit. The dashboard, the automatic light page, Bugo 504, where he faced his misadventure. He could still see the image of his assailant in front of him, covered in sweat. He could hear his rapid breathing and see his eyes shine with a perverse and evil glow. He described his attacker as a man of about 30 with curly brown hair, unshaven and wearing a bandage on the corner of his jaw. 
A composite sketch was immediately drawn and sent to every police station in the country. The face of the man who had come to be known as the sadist of Sotons then made the front page of every paper and rocked the entire country. The word she was Switzerland was now in the grips of a sexual maniac. A first for the country. As a result, many young people stopped hitchhiking and preferred to cut their evenings short by taking public transportation to get home. The investigation began in an overall frenzied atmosphere where the people constantly wanted to be reassured. They demanded to know if the suspect had been caught or if he was still on the run. The people did not have to wait a long time for an answer. Over the next few days, in a popular neighborhood of the outskirts of Vermont, a young boy began to draw connections and recognized some of his brother's features in a sketch made by the police. His name was Mikhail Piri, a man who until then had not been the focus of any attention. He never broke the law, who had a good job and a family and a social life. In other words, he seemed normal. For the moment, his family didn't dare say anything. How could they denounce their own son? Yet there could no longer be any doubt. It was in fact Mikhail Puri, the discreet son who they had always known to be a bit behind the times. At that time, he was serving in the military at a base camp in Bern and his superiors had only good things to say about him. This was not like him at all. Finally, it was his brother who made the decision to turn him into the police. Mikhail Puri's parents' home was immediately searched. The man had been living with them since before his military service, sharing the two rooms and kitchen of his modest low-income housing unit that was far too small to accommodate five people. In his room, the police made a discovery. There were strings, gags, rolls of tapes and shackles which were all taken into evidence. In the garage, the police noted that Mikhail Puri had two cars, a green Citroen CX and a beige Bugo 504 which was one of the models described by the victim. The police began their search of the two vehicles down to the smallest details and even found more surprises. In the trunk of the Bugo, they found three tanks filled with gas, some strings and a pair of handcuffs and a hammer which served as the weapon used to knock out young Thomas. From that moment on, the police were convinced Thomas's attacker and Vincent's murderer was one and the same person. Throughout the country, the news sent unprecedented shockwaves because there had never been crimes of this magnitude committed by the same person and using the same name, M.O., and the same selection strategy to trap his victims. This was starting to look like the work of a serial murderer where the perpetrator traveled throughout the township to find and track potential prey. A race against the clock had started for the police who wanted at all costs to stop the murderer from doing any more damage. To carry out the arrest, the police launched a joint operation with the army in complete secrecy. Mikhail Puri was located in Bern countryside and was arrested on May 1, 1987. On that night, Puri was on duty with a loaded gun over his shoulder. The police and the military then waited patiently for him to return to the premises and to fall asleep in order to arrest him. The soldier did not resist when they finally put the handcuffs on him. The police also found two 22 caliber Winchester pistols in his military knapsack. Seated on a stool with his eyes lowered, Mikhail Puri quickly confessed while he smoked a cigarette. Yes, he had killed Thomas and Winston and Cedric. When he confessed, he was not aware that Thomas had survived his injuries and had helped the police make their composite sketch. When they told him, he felt almost relieved. If you hadn't arrested me, I would have done it again, he calmly told the police. That sounded almost like a threat or a warning. The investigators were faced with a soldier with an impeccable appearance, looking very stiff in his uniform and who had just confessed to them with disturbing ease all the crimes that he had committed, down to the last details. But more precisely, 
who was really hiding behind the nervous and fixed stare of this Michelle Perry. At the barracks in Bern, where he was stationed at that time, all the soldiers agreed that he was well-liked by everybody. That sentiment also was expressed by his circles of friends, who only spoke highly of him. When he was not in his barracks, Michel Puri spent his time swimming or mountain climbing. He also actively participated in the social life of his community. Before he was arrested, he was a member of the Freiburg Alps Spelling King Club. Michel Perry had all the markings of a good team player and was a fascinating man who inspired confidence from all his peers. He was always involved in activities within his club. He organized parties, took care of the material and fundraising. In short, he was a decent man with integrity that everyone could easily count on. The positive reports and testimonies only served to heighten the shock of his arrest for these horrifying crimes. Joseph, one of his friends from the club, had this to say on the subject. It hit me like a ton of bricks. Not him. Not the Michelle that I knew. What made him go off the rails like that? To understand how this committed soldier, this beloved, superior athlete, could have become a violent, uncontrolled sexual predator, psychiatrists used a technique that was gaining in popularity in the United States called profiling, which focuses on examining an individual's background in an attempt to understand the reasons which led them to become a criminal. But what precisely was known about his previous life? Michel Puri was born in Neuchâtel on February 28, 1959, the day his parents also chose to legitimize their civil union because his mother had become pregnant long before she had a ring on her finger. Such a condition was viewed unfavorable in the small Catholic township of the Freiburg where everyone consulted with the church before even thinking about having children. The Puris gave birth to another son four years later before finally agreeing to sleep in separate rooms. Ever since he was very young, little Michel felt complete and exclusive love for his mother. He revered her and constantly sought her attention and affection. But this love that bordered on idolization only ran into one direction because Mrs. Puri was a cold and not very demonstrative woman who hardly displayed any of the maternal qualities that her son claimed she had. His father, however, was a different story. Michel detested him, despised him and openly denigrated him. The hatred was mutual and his father did not make any attempt to hide the fact. His father was a violent alcoholic who constantly beat his wife in front of their children. In the past, several complaints had been made against him for sexually abusing young girls. He had never been arrested for these crimes, probably because he was protected by the taboo surrounding pedophilia in the early 1960s and the fact that the police clearly preferred to look the other way. Michel Puri exploded in front of the police who took notes. I hated my father, even more during moments like that, and I often felt like killing him so that he would stop hurting my mother, so that he would stop torturing us once and for all. The Puri family was a classic example of a dysfunctional family. The husband and wife hated each other and were constantly fighting, and their children were tortured and completely neglected. With his tyrannical father and his cold, indifferent mother, young Michael constantly felt belittled and humiliated. One day, as a punishment, his mother sent him to school dressed in girls' tights. For the young boy, this was a horrific ordeal. As soon as he entered the class, everybody started laughing and mocking him, while the teacher mercilessly ridiculed him, calling him unclean, savage, and immoral. That day, I wanted to disappear off the face of the earth. When I saw these sneering kids taking so much pleasure in mocking me, I wanted to make them cry, to hurt them, and to make them suffer like I was suffering. This terrible episode had a long-term effect on him and, in his opinion, was the trigger for his future behavior. 
From then on, the fragile little boy, who was always looking for affection, could no longer stand to see people his own age being happy around him, could no longer tolerate the contemptuous gaze of the teachers and nuns who talked down to him and ignored him all throughout his studies. He wanted them to all die in the most painful possible way. The rest of his academic journey was a failure. In addition to his desire for revenge, which grew stronger year after year, he also began to experience a premature and uncontrolled sexuality. When he was just 12 years old, young Michel Piri was captivated by a sadomasochistic scene that he found in his father's pornographic magazine. Fascinated by what he saw, the young boy wanted to learn more about it. He transformed himself into the ideal representation of sexuality, which from the outset, he associated with violence. He spent his entire preteen years indulging in fantasies of abuse on his young classmates. He devoted his nights to masturbating with the constant fear that his mother might catch him in the act. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. At the age 13, Michel Puri discovered, to his dismay, that he was attracted to boys. He took the news badly, very badly, unable to speak to anyone about it. He kept it all to himself and felt tremendous guilt. His suppressed homosexuality tortured him much more than his need for revenge, and he dreaded his parents finding out about his sexual orientation and his preference for members of his own sex. During this pivotal period, he lost a lot of weight, hardly ate anything, and his work at school continued to deteriorate. School psychologists did not exist during that era, and any child who was distracted or too much of a dreamer was simply reprimanded. In order to better understand this environment, it is necessary to give some context to time of the events. This was the 1960s in a township where everyone was a practicing Catholic and where homosexuality was a taboo subject which was stigmatized and no one dared to speak about. In such a context, the teenager had no one to confide in, not a parent, not a teacher, nor a friend. He made a decision to reveal his conscience and went for confession to atone for his sins. Behind the confessional screen, Michel Piri had no idea where to start, but the priest reassured him and told him that his feelings were normal 
and that he shouldn't worry. When it was over, he left the confessional with a strangely lighter heart. As for the priest, he had something else on his mind. Over the days that followed, he invited the boy to his room, encouraged him to have sex with him before giving him 50 francs. Michel Puri was plagued by the conflicting emotions. On one hand, the sex with the priest wasn't as bad as he thought, and on the other, he was completely terrified. One thing was certain, something had gone seriously wrong in his head, overwhelmed by psychological mechanisms. Nobody understood that at that moment. I left normal society to lock myself in a myth, a separate world, mine. The police officer typed on the typewriter. When he became an adult, Michel Puri discovered his vocation as a soldier at the same time he discovered the gay bars in Lausanne and Geneva, which were ideal places for men to meet each other for discreet encounters. He liked being picked up by other men because it boosted his self-esteem. From that moment on, the future sadist of Ramon would reverse roles. He would go from being the bullied and abused child to the one who did the subjugating. He would be the one to dominate, to belittle, most importantly, the one who raped and killed. Yet he claimed not to be a pedophile, although most of his victims were teenage or preteen boys. In September 1981, Michel Puri went on a year's sabbatical, took out a loan at the bank, and left for a vacation in the United States when he was 22 years old. While he was in Florida, he met a young Canadian named Sylvester. They quickly became lovers before the young man mysteriously disappeared. Upon his return to Switzerland, Michel Puri joined the army and was stationed at a base in Bern. His desire to kill reached its peak. He was careful to leave off a cooling period between his crimes, sometimes a year or two, or sometimes shorter breaks of just a few months or weeks. That was the reason why, on February 4, 1984, he had murdered young Frederick, a French camper who he picked up hitchhiking before sexually assaulting him, tying him up, and burning him. One evening, March 1987, he saw the sturdy, kind young Vincent approach his car. The young man smiled as he pressed against the window and asked, Sir, are you headed to Scotland's? Could you give me a lift? Michel Puri immediately found it difficult to control his impulses, which were initially sexual but soon became murderous. Michel Puri, like many other itinerant killers of his caliber, moved around a lot and found in order to find potential victims. In terms of vehicles, he had two cars that he used, an olive green Citroën and a light beige Bugo. His long journey brought him to places and countries in which it was difficult for ordinary European citizens to gain access like the Baltic states, Yugoslavia, and even Poland, crossing borders and bribing customs officers with Swiss francs, which were as valuable as gold in communist countries. In Italy, in the region between Como and Bellinzona, Michel Puri found a new victim, young Fabio Vanetti, an 18-year-old boy who had been missing since August 14, 1986. For nine months, police and investigators undertook a massive hunt but were unable to find the mysterious killer. Inspector Giorgio Golicero, who had been involved with the case from beginning, recounted. Fabio had gone to the railway station, but he arrived too late and missed the last train to Wobarno, where his parents lived. So he went outside and started walking along the main road. It was at that point that his trail went cold. In May 1987, Michel Puri's arrest in Switzerland made the headlines even outside the country. It did not go unnoticed by the Italian inspector who saw a connection with the disappearance of the young Fabio Juanetti. It could not be a mere coincidence. Michel Puri always attacked hitchhikers on the day before vacations or public holidays. It was on one such evening before a holiday that Fabio Juanetti disappeared after missing his train home.
previously, Michel Puri spent his summer vacations in Yugoslavia, where he apparently stayed until August 11. It is therefore likely that he arrived in Italy throughout the town of Trieste and then had landed in Como area, in the north on around August 13. While it seemed like the investigation was coming to an end in Switzerland, Italy still wanted to question Michel Puri and so he was transferred. Italian investigators started asking him questions about his recent and sudden movements. Without any pressure from them, Michel Piri confessed to what had happened on the night of August 14. He explained how he picked up Fabio Vanetti hitchhiking, how they rode together to the entrance of the town before retreating into the woods. Once there, he sexually assaulted him, strangled him and set his body on fire. With the directions that the criminal had given them, the police had no trouble in finding the charred remains of the young man at the riverbank crossing the small town of Biesca. Inspector Giorgio recalled. While many colleagues were marking the crime scene's perimeter, Michael Puri just stood there, very calm. He told us in detail about the terrible things he did to poor Vanetti before killing him. It's true that as police officers, we're used to hearing these kind of things, but I have to tell you that we are on the brink of losing it. Michel Puri used the expression, going hunting, which according to him, referred to a ritual that he had established for killing. He never hesitated to drive late at night, crisscrossing many roads, prowling rest areas and bus stations, always on the lookout for potential victims. Ideally, young boys who were vulnerable, hitchhiking alone. Sometimes without them even asking him, he would offer to drop them off somewhere. Occasionally, he would even offer them money. Some accepted while others refused running away from him and calling him a maniac. It's important to note that his appearance often worked in his favor. His looks as well as his kind and friendly demeanor were a tremendous help in gaining the trust of the young men who approached him, unaware at that moment that they were walking straight into the lion's den. Yet, Michel Puri made it clear that sometimes these outings were temporary because he was usually careful to take a break between each of his attacks. Sometimes the opposite happened and his need to kill and rape would come roaring back, as urgent as it was destructive, like an addiction that had to be quickly satisfied. When I had these young men at my mercy, I felt avenged for all the frustrations that I had to endure, and I really liked the feeling of dominating so much that it started becoming a habit. For me, it was like a drug. From that moment on, Michel Puri's profile had become clearer to both the Swiss and the Italian police beyond a shadow of doubt. He was the prime example of an extraordinary sexual predator, a charmer and a two-faced instigator who felt superior to his victims since he dominated and belittled them. In turn, that gave him a feeling of wholeness and self-actualization. Consequently, all unsolved disappearances that occurred in French-speaking Switzerland were re-examined. It was at that pivotal moment when the case of young Cidric re-emerged from obscurity. As explained earlier, the young teenager from Valais had, according to the official version, accidentally set himself on fire at the top of a mountain. His parents, however, always rejected that story. Michel Puri reiterated his confession of Cedric's murder to the speechless Italian police. For the boy's parents, this confession almost felt like a relief. Finally, they knew what really happened, and now they could silence the tongues that had been wagging during the course of the entire investigation. A short time after having confessed to the murder of Cedric, Michel Puri admitted to a sixth crime. The press wanted to hear every last word of his constantly updated revelations. The sadist of Ramon described how he committed his murders in great detail. The newspapers wanted to hear more and more, and so did the readers. With each revelation from the sadist of Ramon, Switzerland reeled from the shock. 
the country's integrity had been profoundly compromised and its reputation as a neutral and flawless nation had now been tarnished by this case. For many of its citizens, it was hard to explain how a small village like Freiburg could have been hiding a predator of this magnitude for so long. Without ever reporting any kind of incident or even the slightest scandal, it was very strange indeed. After having confessed to all these crimes, Michel joined the list of potentially violent and dangerous serial killers. However, it is important to note that at the time of these events, the term serial killer had not yet become a part of the moral fabric and the mindset of many European countries. Furthermore, Michel Bury was not the kind of killer who remained in his comfort zone. He was a man on the move. He used to drive around his car, traveling extensively to countries that were not easily accessible in those days. Countries like Yugoslavia, Poland, Hungary, and the United States. This meant that Michel Puri could potentially have found other victims in all the places that he visited which were still unreported. For example, in the summer of 1986, Puri had spent his vacation in Yugoslavia. He stayed at Club Med at a Croatian seaside resort where he met other Swiss tourists. One day, one of them noticed Puri in a dreadfully physical condition. His limbs were seriously burned to the point where his skin was raw. To stem the tide of discreet questions on the topic, Michel Piri simply shrugged his shoulders and laughed. Oh, that, it's just really a bad sunburn. I have very fair skin, something that I got from my mother. People were, however, skeptical of his explanation. For Italian investigators who had until then been working alone on this sordid case, Michel Piri was a liar. There was no doubt that these burns were linked to crimes that he allegedly committed over there, crimes that he eventually confessed to. After once again being subjected to several intense interrogations, his victims were named Silvio, a young Italian man originally from Trieste who had been picked up in the Rijeka region of Croatia at the time still part of Yugoslavia. In those days, Italians from Trieste often spent their summer vacations in Yugoslavia because it ended up being cheaper than a vacation in Sardinia. Michel Piri told the police that he had lied and that the burns on his legs were as a result of gasoline that had splashed on him when he doused Silvio before setting his dead body on fire. As with the case of Fabio Vanetti, Michel Puri provided extremely graphic details on how he committed the crime. As a result of this latest confession, Inspector Golosero decided to go to Yugoslavia himself to try and get to the bottom of it all. Once on the scene, with the help of the Croatian police, he combed the areas surrounding Rajka and any other place where the sadist of Ramon would have been likely to visit. Yet despite the assistance of the local police, the Italian inspector could not find anything at all. Not a single clue nor an evidence, yet he still held a deep conviction that the murderer had told the truth yet again. Galocero did not really know what to expect and feared the worst, that other victims would come out of the closet. After being incarcerated for a year, Michel Puri confessed to a total of 11 homicides spread out over a period of 1981 and 1987. He delivered his confession whenever the mood struck him. Sometimes he spoke with disconcerting spontaneity, but other times the police definitely felt like getting him to talk was like trying to pull a teeth. As for the victims, apart from those that had been already identified, there were still a great many that would remain anonymous and could never be identified due to the absence of a body and a lack of evidence. However, there had been anonymous victims in the past. In particular, there was Sylvester, on one night stand with Michel Puri had met up on a trip in Florida, or Frederick, a young man killed in Grenoble, or Joel from France that he had picked up hitchhiking. The list seems to be endless and the police really didn't know what to expect anymore. And Laure, a young French girl on a camping trip, was amongst those who fell prey to Puri. 
whom he had murdered and the sole female on his list of victims. Michelle Puri recalled that she had straight hair and her skin was a bit too saggy for a girl her age, 19. And furthermore, he did not have sex with her. According to the Italian police who were keeping him under surveillance, Michelle Puri was still holding back a lot of information. And undoubtedly, there were probably more than 11 murders as he would have them believe. Tell us about your love life. Have you seen anyone before? What kind of woman was she? Asked the police officer while typing. My wife? Yeah, yeah, that's it, my wife. Michelle Puri had never been with a woman, but he had been with Romaine, a man with whom he was briefly involved. It was a relationship that still brought a smile to his face even today. His former companion was brought in for questioning. He had learned about the events from the newspaper and television. He was in complete shock. He gave a version of the sadist of Ramon that was the complete opposite of what they had just seen and heard. Romain, his former companion, described him as someone who is sociable, attentive, and the polar opposite of a nocturnal predator who crisscrossed country roads in search of young men to rape, although he never had any doubts about him. Nevertheless, Romain added that Michel Puri seemed like someone who was deeply unhappy. Michel sometimes gave me the impression of being an orphan, or someone who grew up without a family or any attachments, he recalled. The police wanted to know more about their life together before the case began and Romain told them about how he and Michel Puri met in 1985 in a bar in Freiburg. At that time, Puri was completing his military service where he worked as a stylist in a fashionable salon in Lausanne. Sparks immediately flew between the two of them. He had no faults as far as I was concerned. He was perfect, the man of my dreams, he said to the police. However, there was one major drawback. Michelle Puri's repeated lies. His partner initially preferred to ignore Puri's compulsive lying, even if it did tend to take on significant proportions at times and jeopardize the couple's future together. Michelle Puri lied about his career, his family, and claimed to be a high-ranking officer in the army, when in fact he was not. Their relationship had become compromised. Tired of his companion's lies and repeated stories, Romain finally ended their romantic relationship after a year. Michelle Puri had a difficult time dealing with the breakup and continued to harass Romaine on the telephone or by parking all night outside his window. After several weeks of an uphill battle, Puri gave up his desperate plan to get back together with him. By mutual agreement, the two former lovers eventually reconciled but would never get back together romantically, a move that Puri reluctantly accepted. It was in this state of mind that Puri's former lover discovered the murderous past and the hidden side of the man that he idealized. Shock soon turned into fear. When I think about it, he could have easily come to my home and killed me and he would have had a good reason to do so. Our breakup. He then remembered how Michel Puri always had two cans of gas hidden in the trunk of his pugo. Oh, that's for when I run out of fuel in the middle of the country. The cords and the flashlight, therefore when I go mountain climbing. He had an answer for everything and his partner never wanted to know anything more. Yet, there were so many things that should have alerted him, such as that infamous night when Michel Puri came to pick him up at his apartment at around 9 p.m. Puri was completely pale, disheveled, quiet and trembling all over. He claimed that he had caught a bad cold or the truth was he had just killed someone that evening. When I found out later about all the horrible things he did, I didn't even feel like going to visit him in the prison. He destroyed so many lives. So many families that go to see him would be an insult to them, an opinion which Michel Puri's former companion maintains even today. After a long standoff with the judicial police, Michel Puri alias, the sadist of Ramon, eventually confessed to 11 murders committed in different places and countries. 
But was this actually the right number? For both Swiss and Italian police, there was no doubt that Fury had even more victims, which they estimated may be as many as 30. His trial eventually ended in conviction with a life sentence, but a verdict that he continuously criticized. Michel Fury's criminal career, timed and organized, however ended up backfiring on him. Like many serial killers, the sadist of Ramon tended to choose victims who looked alike, always careful to study, organize and plan their abduction while jealously guarding the double life he led of a soldier, an athlete by day and a predator by night. By making his victims suffer, he was perhaps trying to exercise his own childhood memories where he was the eternal punching bag, a theory that many psychoanalysts offered as an explanation with the understanding that it in no way excused crimes that Fury committed in cold blood and with a deliberate and willful cruelty. In France, his record has long been compared to that of Pierre Chanel, another exemplary soldier who had fallen into criminality and rape targeting young men. In 2002 and 2009, Michel Pierry applied for provisional release for which he was refused. Currently, he is still behind bars. We're at the end of our show for today, so feel free to listen to the other shows on the podcast and take five seconds to leave us a five-star rating on iTunes. It's really important to us. You can also subscribe to the next episodes and follow us on Facebook to suggest new ones. Thank you and see you soon. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.